listening to Ohio State English, the podcast, for the month of February 2015. I'm Haley Callens. For those of you who don't know, I'm graduating this semester, and there are so many English classes I wish I could have taken. A lot of friends have been telling me about their folklore classes, and they all sound amazing. I kept thinking, why did I not get a jump on this? What is this amazing-sounding department where all of these great things are happening? I realized I didn't really know what it meant to study folklore, and I really wish I had figured it out sooner. This episode is designed to hopefully keep you from making my mistakes. Stay tuned. Today I'm going to be learning a little bit about the folklore department here at the English department. I'm speaking with some of the uh, leaders of folklore here at Ohio State, and I will let them introduce themselves. Uh, Hi, my name is Cassie Patterson. I'm the Assistant Director of the Center for Folklore Studies and the Director of the Folklore Archives. And I'm Dorothy Noyes. I'm a Professor in English and Comparative Studies and a folklorist as well. I'm Martha Sims. I'm a Senior Lecturer in the English Department and I'm a folklorist. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, The reason that I was interested in learning more about folklore is that, you know, I'm a graduating senior this year, um, and I have a lot of friends that are taking uh, a folklore class this semester, and they tell me, you know, the title or what it is that they're learning about. I'm like, that's so interesting. Like, I had no idea that these classes were, like, available, and I'm I'm all full of regret that I can't sign up for more of them immediately. But um, so I was just sort of... uh, Curious um, if you could speak a little bit about uh, what kinds of variety a student could could expect when they are looking into, well, what is a folklore class? Um, how is it different from, you know, your kind of expected sort of lit classes that, that students will take as an English major or as a gen ed? Oh, well, I guess I'll talk. <laughs> this is Martha. Um, I think the thing about folklore that to me is so fascinating is that it's... It, draws on some of the English major sorts of analysis and can look at texts that are verbal texts, but it's really a much more rounded sort of look at culture and creativity. And I guess this semester I'm teaching a second level writing class with a folklore focus. And one of the things that I've been doing Every other day, probably, in the building I teach in Caldwell is I check out the graffiti in the women's restroom in Caldwell and see if there have been any changes in the graffiti, and we talk a little bit about the graffiti, and students students are not quite as fascinated with the graffiti as I am, but I (laughs) I think that's one of the things that I like about it is there can be any sort of moment on the way to class or discussions about behaviors of people in groups that students hang out with or something we see uh, out the window and we can start thinking about how that relates to everyday life and people's interactions and the way they communicate with each other. Yeah, I think, you know, Martha makes the point that this is an area where students are experts without knowing it. Uh, because folklore is a layer of every kind of practice. You know, not everybody writes novels, but everybody tells stories. Not everybody runs for president, but everybody is involved in sort of figuring out power in their little local relationships. You know, folklore is, we think of it as the vernacular layer. That is, it's the ways of doing things that we work out in everyday life, 
uh, we work out as, you know, we learn them in the same way as we learn our native language as we're growing up. And so we don't really think about them as anything special. We're not, it's not helpful to us to be theorizing what we're doing in everyday life. It sort of works because we know it as a matter of habit, as a matter of, you know, sort of strategy without, um, without having to theorize it. And so academic folklore looks back uh, and sort of makes us pay attention to everything that we take for granted in everyday life. Uh, and that makes it, I think, both easy to enter but also kind of confusing as a subject matter. Um, it's also difficult to think about what the there there is. But the there there for us is that we're looking at how these practices um, where they come from uh, in terms of tradition, how they are carried forward without the means of formal education or institutions maintaining them, but you know how these are sort of collectively agreed upon ways of doing things that get quietly modified and quietly reproduced. And we're interested in that kind of quiet logic of how these things happen. So it sounds like folklore is sort of all around us, whether we realize it or not. Uh, which is which is interesting, and I think um, I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in this, um, but when you hear the word folklore, uh, I think a lot of people might think of um, you know maybe ancient sort of fairy tales or fables mm -hmm. or stories. Um, and it sounds like you know you're you're talking about graffiti on the and the women's restroom, which I think sounds really interesting. <laughs> um, so so yeah, like where um, how does the what you all are talking about kind of work with that sort of understanding we have of what these these stories are, you know, what would maybe be some some examples? Like, I love the the example of graffiti in the women's restroom. Um, where can we find these sort of things in contemporary life? Well, <clears throat> one of the current collections that we have going in the uh, folklore archives are being collected by students right now, and they're slang journals. And so, basically, students of um, English courses, I believe, it's a linguistic version of those thing of the course, but they are collecting instances of slang from their friends and people around them, and then deposited in the archive. So those are things that are emerging right now, things that are changing right now. But the field, you know, you have to look at the history of the field here. Uh, the word folklore, you know, is coined in 18, what is it, 47? Um, you know, people start getting interested in folklore as an object of study just when the world is beginning to modernize very quickly you know, where what we used to take for granted is now changing very quickly as peasants are moving off the soil and into factories. And the concept of folklore is really put together by, you know, kind of modern urban people uh, who like to imagine that within three years everybody's going to look like them. Everybody is going to be a middle-class educated white man, uh, or if they're not going to be, if they aren't going to be, then we have to figure out some way of talking about why women are different, why children are different, why peasants are different, why ethnic and religious minorities are different. And the way that folklore got conceptualized in Europe was to say that folklore is everything that's still embarrassing inside the modern nation state. It's everybody who hasn't gotten with the program, and even all of the impulses in ourselves that haven't gotten with the program. So it was both a kind of nostalgic and a kind of stigmatizing turn. You know, these old songs, these old stories, this is much more poetic than we can afford to be nowadays, but at the same time, you know, this is stuff that's going to go away. So it was a kind of 
political move to distance certain kinds of actors to marginalize women and children and minorities and everybody who was not a middle-class white man. And so by the same, on the one hand, it's been a way of um, keeping people on the margins, but it's also been a way for those people on the margins to speak, uh, you know, on their own platform when they have not been allowed access to the privileged means of education or political representation or economic power. This is why, you know, folk songs were the protest songs of the civil rights movement of 1968, of every kind of movement. You know, if you want to have a way of expressing yourself in public, it's often good to do, and you're in danger if you speak frankly in your own person, it's not a bad idea to tell a story or tell a joke or sing a song that, you know, symbolically is pretty clear, but still is not something for which you can be held legally accountable. So there's a European way of looking at folklore, really, that has to do with politics and class power and ways of speaking that are not privileged. And that, of course, moves into the United States, but the United States you know, has a different logic both because we have um, a different way of talking about ordinary people. Uh, you know, here we believe we're all ordinary people even if we happen to be rich and privileged, um, but also uh, because things change very quickly here. Uh, and I think particularly, you know, youth cultures now, just because of the nature of the technological platforms they're on, you know, there's a lot of continuity of substance. There's a lot of continuity in even the kinds of tales that get told. I'm teaching a course right now in the fairy tale where um, uh, students have to find the fairy tale plot in modern life around them. And we are no longer telling stories by the fireside because we've got other things to entertain us. But that fairy tale plot is not just in Disney princess movies, it's in self-help books. It's in the kinds of stories that immigrants tell about the American dream and their expectation of being able to move forward toward a better life, um, and at the same time in the kinds of narratives of disappointment people have when that doesn't happen. So those old habits, um, you know, and the old forms are still with us, uh, but they're sometimes hard to recognize, both when technologies are changing very quickly and also when communities are much less... Um, stable than they were at one time. Great. Uh, you sort of anticipated my next question, um, and you talked about students are recording. Um, Cassie, you talked about mm -hmm. students are recording these, these slang journals. Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering if, if the three of you could speak to why you think it's so important to, to record these things or take note of them um, or study them, especially as they're, they're occurring all around us, all in our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, do you want to talk that? <laughs> yeah, from, I mean, I think from an archival perspective, we have collections of, you know, we have collect, uh, student collections that date back to the 1960s, and students that are taking courses now are using those as comparative examples. And so it's a really great record to have of how things are changing. We have images of dorm rooms. Um, you know, from the 1960s and the 1980s, and how do those compare to the dorm rooms that are being decorated today and the posters that are being sold on the Oval, you know, the first week of classes? 
Um, so I think comparison is one way that they're really important, um, but also things like first use. So the slang journals are a really great example of that. When are certain words emerging for different groups and how do those words travel among different groups? Um, and what does that tell us about their relationships to one another? Um, and then we also have some really great collections in the archives um, of Ohio um, folklore in terms of like the Cleveland, Cleveland Orthodox community, and we have fiddle contests and bluegrass contests, and those are really interesting just to see what was going on around the state. What are people interested in? What's being showcased at the Ohio State Fair? Um, and how does that compare to what's going on now? It also gives us some, in, some perspective on what folklorists were interested in collecting at different points in time. We have an event coming up in a couple of weeks that's going to be focusing on Ohio underground music in Northeast Ohio during the 60s and 70s, which is right around the time that we were collecting for the Ohio Arts Council projects where we were looking at um, bluegrass and, and fiddle tunes. So these things are happening almost simultaneously, but where do we turn our eye at different times? And what does that tell us about folkloristics? And I think one thing Cassie's pointing to is that the role of the archives and the role of documentation has changed. Um, you know, when the Brothers Grimm were writing down stories, the idea was that uh, these were stories that were about to disappear out of oral tradition and they were saving something. But I think right now, really, everybody is documenting themselves. I mean, the kind of self-curation. Mm -hmm. You know, this is really a feature of every kind of contemporary vernacular culture. People are their own archivists, and certainly the people um, uh, are event with the, uh, the uh, Northeast Ohio underground scene. This really will be talking about an archival project that is coming from fans of the music. Uh, and participants in the music. And the role that the archives is taking, as Cassie says, is really this role of kind of coordinating the comparisons or, you know, I think nowadays helping, um, you know, vernacular collectors to find each other and to be able to look um, not only at how things are changing historically, but also how different communities side by side are doing rather similar things. You know, I think everybody, of course, collects what's precious to them, uh, and everybody is kind of likely to imagine that what they do is unique, partly because tradition is a lot of labor. You know, putting on a festival is a lot of labor. Every, you know, traditional artist I've ever talked to has said, this is a dying art, and if I didn't do it, nobody would. And very often, objectively, that's not true at all. It's often a flowering <laughs> art. But still, you have to have a sense of personal responsibility. So you don't often know what's happening around you, and sometimes that makes your world smaller than it needs to be. I mean, there are commonalities across ethnic groups, uh, across religious groups, uh, that they may not recognize and people may feel more alone than they are um, in not realizing that there are real um, family resemblances here among the kinds of tradition that groups generate to feel at home in the world. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to mm -hmm. students when they begin to see those kinds of cultural methods of expression and ways of gathering together with other people over things that they're interested in. And then they see that there were people 30 years ago who were doing the same mm -hmm. kind of thing about a different type of music or about a different type of art. And so I think that, and, or food, that's, mm -hmm. it's a hot topic to talk about in class <laughs> as well and think about. But I think that's a really interesting piece of the 
the analysis of folklore that is interesting to students to be able to identify with things that other people have done, whether it's traditions that go way back or things that maybe their friends do that are really similar to them, even though they have different interests and how they communicate those interests and share those interests in the small groups that they're a part of, I think is also a really great thing for them to be able to see. And it really does mm-hmm. give students and, and others, not just students, everybody mm-hmm. who's aware of it, um, a sense of where they are in the world in a really sometimes reassuring, mm-hmm. sometimes difficult <laughs> way. Well, at least that they have kind of a repertoire for knowing how to act in the world. And I think even realizing that uh, and realizing that you're not alone in knowing how to use that repertoire, that you're not alone in recognizing those symbols or sharing that language, um, it's an important thing. It seems to be very much based around community from what I'm hearing from, from you all. Yeah, it can be, you know, I'm thinking now internationally because folklore and politics is one of my special interests. Um, Mm -hmm. Community is a bit of a dangerous word, and it's especially a dangerous word for people in weak positions. Um, Again, for women and children and sort of people on the edges. You know, if you're looking at... um, if you're talking about, you know, communities in Afghanistan, let's say, in the context of a war, you know, you're likely to say that the opinion of the community is reflected by the senior male elder, you know, who says, this is what our culture is about. You know, so community is something that is both, you know, something that makes coherence for people, but a community is also a realm of power. Um, a lot of what's interesting about old folklore, and I think the, the kind of difference between old tradition and new tradition, to put it in really crude terms, <laughs> uh, is that if you're studying the old folklore genres like fairy tales or traditional festival, which is what I studied, this was sort of the only game in town. Everybody had to use it. These things ended up with very complicated meanings because they were the forms that everybody shared, whether they were on the top or on the bottom, you know, they all had to make it mean something. And so those forms end up lasting for a long time because they're very flexible. Fairy tales can be about how to be good or they can be about how to be smart. Um, You know, they can be about playing the rules or breaking them. But I think the feature now of contemporary culture in affluent societies is that you have your choice of the kind of music you you want to listen to. You have the choice of... Um, the kind of subculture that appeals to you, you can kind of select your repertoire uh, and live among people who share that commitment. And that makes for a different kind of communal experience that's more self-selected. So it's a qualitative difference. It you know, gives you certain kinds of power, um, maybe also certain kinds of limitations in reaching across uh, those, those kinds of boundaries. But it's a change. That is one of the things that we study. Uh, so, Martha, I had a question for you specifically. Uh, you've done uh, courses about Columbus oral history and culture, mm-hmm. and as somebody who has lived around Columbus uh, for most of my life, it occurred to me that I wouldn't even know where to start with all of that. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of your work on, on that sort of Columbus history. Well, the stuff that I have done has been, for the most part, um, service learning courses where um, 
areas of either people in the university, the, um, the, I can't remember the name of the Mount Vernon, uh, African, uh, yeah, blah, the extension, blah, center. extension center. Yeah. There's a whole big fancy name, um, mm-hmm. that goes along with it. But anyway, um, the, they had, uh, they have classroom space there and they have at different times reached out to different parts of the university to have classrooms held out there. So one of the things that we did initially was we did um, some oral history work with people in that neighborhood, which is a neighborhood that historically um, was cut off from the center of Columbus when um, the freeways were put in. And there was a lot of really interesting jazz history, African-American culture uh, in that area that was very active. And then with the cutoff um, by the, the roadways, that community was cut off somewhat. Um, so that was an area that we did some work in and um, had students go out into the community, set them up with people in the in organizations in the community, churches and other organizations to do interviewing and gather stories about what it was like to, uh, for some people, be raised in those communities, lived there for, I think we had one gentleman who was in that community maybe from childhood and was about 80 when that he was interviewed. So that's been an area that we've done. And then that was something that I think people became more aware of. We did some work in the university area as well to just find out what it was like, um, businesses, architecture, family life in those different neighborhoods. And it was, it's nice to get students out, especially around the university itself and get them engaged with the university area and finding out about their neighbors and things like that. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, and then speaking of uh, taking a local approach, um, Cassie, I read that your your dissertation is focusing on um, Appalachian studies and mm-hmm. uh, specifically how it pertains to people living here in central Ohio. Um, and I was wondering if you uh, would be able to talk a little bit more about that. You don't have yeah. to tell me all about your whole dissertation <laughs> or anything like that, but um, just a little sampling maybe. Yeah, no, of course. Um, so I'm writing about students from Appalachian, Ohio that are here at Ohio State and the kinds of ways that they talk about relating to home, and also doing some field work in home communities, especially Portsmouth, Ohio, and the murals they have there, and some other aspects of public display, some banners that they have at Shawnee State, and looking at the ways that communities are trying to construct place back home, um, and kind of looking at the connections between those, or the disconnects between those. Um, And this is kind of connected to a project that we're running through the Center for Folklore Studies, called the Appalachian Project Ohio, How I Got to College. And it's a group that's really focused on hearing those narratives from students that are making that transition from Appalachian counties to Ohio State. You know, do they have to go through um, kind of uh, intermediary institutions? Do they go to branch campuses or community colleges first before they get here? What's it like crossing streets here? What's it like trying to sign up for classes and being away from home? What does, you know, what does homesickness feel like? What does nostalgia feel like? Um, And so we're currently in the process of doing some more interviews around that. And some of the things that I found in my research for my dissertation 
um, is that students are certain students have an ambivalent kind of relationship to their home. They're trying to work out the new things that they're learning here and the kind of new positions that they're taking you know, for themselves and how they see themselves moving on and how they can reconcile that to being from a place that may or may not have job opportunities for them once they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this kind of, you know, I think a, a need to distance yourself if you don't think you can find a job back home, even if you might want one. Um, and so I'm just kind of exploring that a little bit more. Yeah, thank you for, yeah. for sharing that with us. Um, you also are the director of the Folklore Archives, and so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the kinds of resources that are available to students um, mm-hmm. in that sort of space and, and how those might be used uh, in folklore classes or maybe in other types of classes. Well, we have so many. <laughs> um, it's so exciting. So we have a lot of collections that are based on Ohio fieldwork, so stuff that's been done throughout the state, and we're really growing these collections right now. So I mentioned the Ohio Arts Council materials earlier. Those were you know, field work that was conducted throughout the state in the 70s and 80s. We also have student collections that date back to the 1960s, and these are you know, individual students going out collecting stuff from their friends, their grandmothers, and you know, their grandparents. A lot of stuff on like different ethnic minorities, um, urban legends, we have... You Ohio know, football customs. Ohio football <laughs> customs. <laughs> yeah, a that lot of sorority. Like for that. A lot of sorority and fraternity stuff. Um, and then we have the slang journals, as I mentioned. We have a phenomenal record collection that our founder, Francis Lee Utley, started for us. He's also the found, one of the co-founders of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. Okay. And he basically asked for some money to start this record collection because he was afraid that but we weren't going to be able to have these sounds anymore. And so we have hundreds, I think a couple thousand actually, records um, dating back to the early 1900s of you know folk music from around the world. And we've been working on digitizing these and also making them more available to the public so we can you know, listen to them for, you know, sources of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the ways that students can access this is just by contacting me, honestly. Um, but also we do have volunteer positions throughout, um, throughout the year. We take a couple of students for people who want to get some um, experience doing archival work, want to learn about how to process a collection, how to make it ready to go up online. How do you kind of think through how a researcher would want to access the material that we are presenting, what kind mm-hmm. of questions they want you know, answered, or what kind of um, pieces of information do they need to make a decision about whether or not our archive is right for their research. Um, so we have a few different people that are working in the archive this semester um, and just helping us think through that. So what kinds of projects do people come through these kind of sources mm-hmm. with? Um, yeah. Uh, well, we've had a couple of different folklorists that were interested in urban legends um, and different legends in Ohio. So um, Diane Goldstein is a um, is the let's see the, the chair of folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana folklore at, at, at ethnomusicology mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> at Indiana University. Okay. And she contacted us contacted us a couple years ago when she was actually at Memorial and wanted to know. I want all of the information on Crybaby Bridge, um, okay. which is a local legend that I didn't know about because I'm not from Ohio. Um, so I learned about it's that one. everywhere. There is a crybaby <laughs> bridge everywhere, Cassie. Tons of crybaby bridges. <laughs> um, so I guess she must have been doing some, I guess, comparative work on that. 
Um, and then we had another gentleman who was doing a book on haunted Ohio and focusing on Marion. Okay. So we pulled a lot of projects that had to do with hauntings in Marion. Other folks asked for core orphanage. Um, that seems oh, to be right. one of the biggest core pieces. Orphanage. Core orphanage is big, and then train ghost trains in, mm-hmm. in southern Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy doing the blues musician, we had some tapes of. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The gosh, what was it? He had this fabulous name. I can't remember what it was. Um, but one of our profs, um, uh, emeritus profs, Pat Mullen, had done some interviews with. Um, guy in Texas. I can't remember his name now, um, but he did some interviews with him that we requested. But um, we also have uh, folklore classes that come in, and any class can come in and, and do research, comparative research. But uh, Danielle Christensen, who's been one of our senior lecturers for the past few years, has had her students come in and do work with the student ethnographic projects. And mm-hmm. so they do, they look at collections from the past, you know, you know however many years, and then they do current collections that do comparative work between the two. So they're all sitting there inside the archives, and they got their pencils out and yeah. you know, looking at the stuff that people have put together in the past. Especially so. with Ohio State student folklore, mm-hmm. really looking back at student slang, at sorority lore, and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. Could I, I could send my students to, oh, yeah. s- to study um, bathroom graffiti. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have a lot of really good graffiti in there right now. And I actually, I was just at, uh, here's a great example of some cool folklore stuff, too. But I was over in one of the Haggerty bathrooms recently, and on one of the toilet paper dispensers, it says, I spent $11,000 on my college, you know, on my college education, and I only get one roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that really speaks to all these conversations that are going on right now about the sure. cost of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it pops up on a toilet dispenser. <laughs> Absolutely. Great example of folklore. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, thank yes. you all so much for, for talking with me about this, this really yeah. interesting subject. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. Thanks. That's our show. Thank you so much to Dorothy Noyes, Martha Sims, and Cassie Patterson for such a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you're a student, I hope you've been inspired to take a folklore class. The time goes quick, trust me on that. 